I specifically block it? I have a thing here to block it. It's anyway. just an indication of the innate narcissism. <laughs> right. Of technology, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Culture. Yeah. yeah. So, as I think I mentioned in some of our message exchanges, we don't typically have much of a plan, um, which seems to work, (laughs) generally speaking. Um, And, you know, I have had the opportunity to, because you have been doing a fair number of podcasts of late, which is awesome. So congratulations on that. Um, I've had the opportunity to hear you speak and certainly read a good bit of your work, at least that's available online. We're totally happy to dive into any of those topics that are extant. And if you wanted to think about, feel into, you know, explore something that you haven't had an opportunity to, or, you know, that's like currently today on your mind or in your heart or your body, like that's totally, we're, we're game for whatever. So like this, this space in some respects, right. is just, uh, we just like to have the opportunity to like encounter interesting people that are thinking, feeling and doing interesting things and engage with them. So there is no agenda on our end or like we don't need to touch into or avoid any particular like topics or spaces. But if there's anything that you are feeling called or inspired by at this moment, we would certainly love to explore that with you. I mean, I, my, my brain is just a compost heap all the time. I'm thinking about everything and reading everything. So, and I love, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and I love the conversational aspect of it. And in fact, I, I think those are the podcasts in general that I enjoy listening to are ones that feel like they're not just someone coming with their spiel and doing it and being Mm. guided through that. So I'm down for this to have an organic nature and to let you guys kind of direct how it begins perhaps um, because this Mm. is your space and I'm coming into it. So yeah. Cool. Well, then we'll tell you the secret, which is that it's sort of already begun. We usually just start recording (laughs) because who who knows when interesting things will start to happen. So welcome. And it's totally a a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you. Um, You're welcome. So I'm going to start with offering something that I've been sitting with for a while that I feel like has been... um, composted and catalyzed in new ways in coming into relationship to the work that you are expressing and that is coming through you. And so, um, and it, I don't, I don't think I'm not suggesting this as something like it's a particularly new idea, but it's deepening in me in ways that I, I think that you will potentially both appreciate and maybe resonate with. Um, so in, in sitting with, mycelial networks, right, in a variety of ways. Um, One of the things that uh, your work and also Merlin Sheldrake's work has really kind of like been turning up the volume on is this like, okay, so if if we think about a teaspoon of soil having between 100 and 1,000 meters of mycelial network and we think of all of the different living organisms that are in this very, very small amount of earth. And we think about the fact that that is literally happening, right? 
within the earth everywhere, but also because of the process of outgassing and specifically with the mycelial networks of sporulation, the air that we're breathing, right, is also its own, maybe not exactly a network in the same way, but there are these spores that are, you know, both on some level um, in physical connection, but also in resonant and chemical connection, right? And certainly we're not even getting into the electromagnetic dimensions of this, right? And then we think about that dynamic of the way that there's this interesting understanding of spores helping to generate weather systems, especially yeah. rain clouds, mm-hmm. right? And then we start to think about, you know, and, and I'm going to full a little Chinese medicine, Taoist cosmology in here yeah. of like the, the organismic aspect, the biotic aspect being the intersectionality of the energy of the cosmos, what gets called the heavens and the Tao and the earth. Right. So that process of those things dancing together is what life arises within and out of. Um, and so then I, I like take all of that and I just think about the process of breathing and I think sure. about what we're exchanging. Right. And I think about how much of us is other than human. And I think about the research that, um, and I can't remember his last name, but there's a cat who did a lot of research on the mycobiome rather than the microbiome, right? Um, mm. So looking at the mycological aspect of um, the internal milieu. And, and then I just kind of like end up in this space where the perennial wisdom tradition's idea of interpenetration, interbeing, interdependence, and interconnection, which often is transcendentalized in this way that is not super interesting to me at the moment, um, is rooted in the physical in this really powerful way. And the, the thing that is the most continuous link appears to be the mycelial network. Isn't it funny? I mean, I think the thing that I always want to trouble is any kind of fundamentalism in my own thinking. And I, I have enough objectivity to see that fungi for me resonate with my very personal story with my connective tissue disease and they are connective tissue. Um, and that they operate as a kind of lyrical ideogram for me. They, um, are potent, mythologically, biologically, personally, medically, um, but they don't necessarily work for other people, that they are a cognitive companion for me that seems to resonate with a lot of other people, but I am in no way saying that I truly believe that they are (laughs) the hinge of it all. I, I think that it's what they teach us is that there's no one thing that does dominate, um, in its, um, its ability to provide an explanation. And if they provide any wisdom, it's that it's the interstitial intelligence that matters. It's the the connectivity. It's the connective tissue between cosmos and underworld, catabasis and ascension, and between actual soil and the air. Um, And so it's that that movement that is important about them rather than the fact that they are any kind of object or identifiable deity. Um, And I think that's what I like about them is that they open up my thinking rather than closing it down. Yeah, Mm. totally heard. I'm thinking too about like um, 
you know, the, this, this liminal space, right. That uh, we've talked a little bit in our exchanges about yin yang theory. Yeah, um, I read your piece, which I loved. And I oh, have to cool. be honest, I have no, <laughs> no knowledge of yin yang theory. Um, it's really one of those lacunae in, in my, um, in my studies. So. Awesome. I mean, awesome in the sense that it, <laughs> yeah. a lacuna is a great place yeah. to, you know, have new experiences. Right. Yeah. So the, I don't, know if I clearly express this in that little piece, but the, um, you know, this, the continuum like nature of these phenomenon, right. That Mm -hmm. so it so often becomes a dualism in the way that people are framing it. Right. And that it, it's inherently processual, right. It is always both. And, um, you know, like Mitroshka nested <laughs> yeah. one within the other, right? Yeah. But also happening in, in at least four dimensions in terms of the movement component. Mm-hmm. And that boundary space, right, which, you know, is so clearly delineated in the Tai Chi too, the yin-yang symbol that virtually everyone who's listening to this has probably seen countless times, right, is inherently permeable, right? Mm-hmm. Because the transformation is actually happening right on that boundary but again because it's happening in you know at least four dimensions that boundary is not in any one place right because that you know it's like it's a little bit like looking at a coastline Mm -hmm. the closer you get to it the longer the coastline gets because of like this kind of fractal and involuted nature and similarly with the movement of yin into yang yang into yin and all of the nested and embeddedness within them right? It's, it's the deeper you go, the deeper it gets, right? The, the closer you look at any point, the more complex that dance becomes, um, which is, I'm bringing up because I'm thinking both about what you were saying about the kind of um, interstitial liminality that the mycelial network points to, is evocative of, like wakes up in us maybe more. Um, and that also in terms of like, the non-hingeness of any one particular orientation as we're like exploring these, yeah. these different spaces really is uh, it's super resonant with that dynamic Indian yang theory. Yeah. And I, I was thinking about, I've been thinking a lot about contraction and dilation and breath and reading your piece on yin yang and thinking about these, you know, I read a lot about quantum physics and, and um, mm. the wave function and, and thinking about how, decay and growth also really function as facilitated by mycelium and microbes and smalls Mm. really do um, exhibit that kind of breathing. Um, Mm -hmm. And that that compost heap, that that moment of death and decay is actually tipping right into the moment of sprouting. And that we're always kind of dancing between one kind of singular life and then like a polyphony of voices. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think the fear that we have is that we are more than just an eye <laughs> that we are like we, that we do have millions of bacterial cells in our bodies and that we are constituted by beings we can't see and can't understand. And I think one of the things that I find beautiful that other people find frightening is maybe I'm being thought by something other than just me. Um, mm. Some, a, a, a being that I have been spending a lot of time with and thinking about lately are locusts which are um, truly, uh, I'm sure you guys know about them Um, and how they're just crickets that kind of go through this wild transformation. That's like pretty much unheard of in the rest of biology where they actually 
go through a morphological change. And they exhibit this swarming behavior that is always on the edge of behavior um, of disorder, that it's not like, and I think that's the thing I've been thinking about lately is it can't be mapped and it doesn't really fit into computer programs that they try to apply to it, like other swarming behavior. I mean, like bees and starlings, you can kind of begin to map how they how, how a murmuration happens. But with locusts, it's very strange, which is they cr- seem to create, as they're falling out of, out of synchrony and movement, they create more disorder. And some, something oh. about this moment where they create more disorder brings them back into synchrony which is this very strange dance. Um, and So it's on like the shooling effect? Yeah, totally. Like... It's, it's, okay. it's, a, it's a different type of chaos. <laughs> and, mm. um, and so that's an idea I've been playing with is, is what is generative chaos? What does it mean to be a person who's... O- if, personally, I think that there's something to be said for always being on the edge of disorder. Um, that if you let your life become too disordered, you can get tipped over really quickly. But if you're always like those locusts bumping into each other and creating these new um, unpredictable connections, you're you're like a biodiverse forest. You're more resilient, more able to adapt to forest fires, changing climatological conditions, human infringement. Um, you can dance. Yeah. And one of the wow. things that's so rad about that, too, right, is, as you were noting, their transformation yeah. in grasshopper to locust comes through dancing, right? Through the bumping. More like, yeah, sort three of three agitations. Of I think it is like you know they need like three back like agitations and they begin, <laughs> yeah. um, which is such an interesting idea. Yeah, super interesting. It, the, and I the, go ahead, Lucas. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say the imagery that comes to mind when you're describing this, and maybe this is like a, a mod because it feels a more of a modern kind of idea, at least in in terms of like how we have to as humans in the 21st century have to adapt to our ever-changing environment it feels like a Taoist on espresso or something like that <laughs> do you know what i mean because we're just like mm-hmm. go with it go with it go with it go with it you know yeah no it's like you have to get really good at improvising and yeah. at, at dealing with extraordinary levels of unpredictability um mosh pit. Think, yeah exactly <laughs> um and i think i think the one thing having a really un, a health um, condition that is very unpredictable has kind of, I think created a musculature in me cognitively at being like, all right, you have to be able to let your day totally melt and be able mm. to um, ferment that and make something out of it. Um, mm. So there are a lot of things about it that I don't, I can't put into a story, but that's one story I could tell about health issues. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a really awesome message for right now for helping people to to deal with present circumstances. Because everyone's talking about, oh, wait, when do we get back to normal? Oh, if we just <laughs> like wear masks this long, we'll get back to normal yeah. and all this. I'm like, dude, normal's gone. Or what you think of normal is not normal. Yeah. This is normal. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but if you can couch it in these terms, I think it's really helpful. You know, I've been trying to tell my patients like, Guys, you just got to get good at surfing right now. Yeah, good at surfing. Yeah, wave riding. There's so many metaphors that Mm -hmm. are helpful for it right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I think that that quick sonicness of it, I think, yeah. is really important. So that that's interesting. I'm definitely going to steal that. Go for it. Doesn't belong to me. And that's also another thing right now is I'm just kind of done with individuality, and mm. I and I hate homogenized universality. Like that also feels like it's a, its own problem. You know, you know, everyone is one. Everyone is the same. Um, but I am done with this sense that I am, you know, that ideas belong to me that this is for me, that my life is about me. I think my life is probably not about me. <laughs> um, I'm probably one bacterial cell in a much bigger body, creating a mm. whole different cascade of effects that I'll never perhaps even be able to see. Well, totally, because I mean, when we take like a, even the most limited deep time perspective, which is all I profess to be able to take, then, and we've said this, Maybe you've heard us say this on this podcast mm -hmm. before because it's something we talk about all the time, but like everything that's ever been on every level that we can conceive and not conceive all had to have arisen in the way that it did for us to be having this conversation right now. So how could I possibly think that I have some kind of <laughs> independent free will or that I'm somehow like, like I could live without the earth? I mean, even if I could go off in a spaceship to Mars, I'd still have to take some version of the earth with me. And then try to turn Mars into enough of the Earth that I could live on it, which is its own weird, perverse set of ideas. But, you know, at the same time, I, I bring it up because it's like there is no extricating this thing that I frame as myself from mm -hmm. context that I even the broadest context I can possibly be aware of is not broad or deep enough to really be a, a, an accurate representation of the way that everything truly is interconnected right yeah and this is why this is another way that mycelium and fungi are a really helpful metaphor which is you know you can't tear up the soil and study the mycorrhizal system there's been actually this mm. kind of real block not block but there's been an, a like a visual issue with demonstrating the wood wide web and with demonstrating mycorrhizal systems because they're very hard to map without destroying <laughs> mm. and um there's all because they're so inside the matrix of the soil they create the soil they and also they take into context all of their different symbionts and mutualistic relationships so how can you take them apart from those and then study them and also another aspect is you know you pour a fungus into an environment and it becomes something really different you know, right. it adapts to that environment and to the nutrients and to the deposits of dead matter there. And when it fruits up as a mushroom, that's a mushroom that's a very specific representation of a place. You know, that phenotype is going to look different somewhere else in a different ecosystem. And so I think I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we are constituted very physically materially you go back to breath like we're breathing in a microbiome we're breathing yeah. in soil and spores 50 million tons of spores in the air a year more than i think any other kind of biomatter um we're breathing this stuff in our cells are getting actually articulated by the substance we're becoming what we're breathing in what we're eating we're made by it how can we exit it um and that can be painful but it can also, I mean, the way I try and think about it is almost as a kind of eroticism, a constant consanguinity and interpenetration that, that we are always in this act of non-penetrative 
<laughs> non-consensual lovemaking with the earth. You know, we're every time our footsteps on the ground, we're sending messages through miles of mycelium. Um, we're constantly affecting the earth and being affected and built by it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and it's an interesting question, right? Like this, the consent question and the affecting affected question, because on on the one hand, you know, I totally, I totally hear and get that. And on the other hand, it makes me want to like dig a little into um, how we are so embedded in an anthrocentric view that yeah. like those questions make sense from that point of view. And I think they're totally like, real questions from that orientation but as you were pointing out if this idea of the individual in and of itself is something that uh is problematic from a certain orientation then it's like okay what happens when i and because we speak english it like it's really tricky right but what happens when we decouple the that notion of selfhood as we inhabit it from this experience that you're describing and so then it's like what does that relationship start to feel and look like and how does that shift how I might do my biology you know and I might practice my medicine and I'm and I might you know be an expression both in terms of like thinking and writing and speaking of philosophy if we can like continue to to decenter the the human project in such a way that it's like that our definitions become <laughs> in a felt sense um, less and less fixated. I mean, I don't have any answers to any of those questions, mm. but I just, I think it's a fascinating uh, web of inquiry, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have no answers and I do, th I want to go back to what you were saying about breathing and the contraction and the oscillation, because I think you do have to go between being an individual that needs to actually be in this body and do certain things. And then the set larger sense of connectivity and of culpability and interpenetration. So I think, it, I think, as you said, like, it's never one note, it's the it's the, the movement and the exchange between both between being in culture, being inside a body, which does feel like a singular unit. And then the knowledge that maybe that's not always the most important story going between stories. Um, right. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, some, something I've been thinking about, like, so how do, how do I apply this to my biology, to my medicine? I mean, I'm just trying to problematize my ideas of, um, how healing happens and how mm. activism happens. <laughs> um, just because I feel like I've hit a wall in a lot of those ways and I, I can either be paralyzed by that or I can keep, keep adding things to the compost heap. And one thing I've been thinking about is, okay, like, so the medicines and the techniques I put into my body to heal connective tissue disease are not working. They don't work. They don't seem to work for other people who have this disease. And this seems to be a waste of energy. And so what if I started to really draw on other healing ideas and modalities from you know ancient ones, whereby suddenly I'm healing connective tissue in the soil, suddenly I'm fighting for the soil. And saying, okay, the soil is also my body, and this is connective tissue too. Um, maybe this will have some kind of reverse flowback, a reflux effect of healing into my body that I can't quantify and measure, but is happening. So I am trying to think about healing as um, flowing past the borders of a self. 
Yeah, and one of the reasons why I often will sort of like harp on this decentering thing is because we're so good at being mm. centered as an individual, yeah. right, bounded organism. Yeah. That mm -hmm. I think, you know, at least for me, um, leaning into creating a greater level of permeability and spending maybe more time working into how am I networked rather than yeah. this kind of like inherent cultural imprint of how am I separate and individuated is a speaking of medicine, like is it in and of itself a powerful medicine for creating um, more equilibrium, right? In, in that continuum of the self bounded self, like, you know, uh, networked beingness kind of expression. But I, I love what you're speaking to um, with, in your own exploration of healing, looking into changing this relationship to soil and what happens if we start to transform things that are going on in the, you know, sort of perceived external environment. Because, you know, I don't know, Lucas, if you want to take this riff, right? But there's definitely, this is, in some ways, what you're expressing is um, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, orientations within classical Chinese medicine, right? Is huh, this kind mm -hmm. of interesting, yeah. situatedness of the individual within the environmental context and that illness is definitely not just localized in the individual, but like if we have climate factors, right? If you have crazy weather, you know, um, you are going to see in people, especially people that have a particular type of pattern that might be related to that weather or related to something that is in correlated, uh, sort of like correlatively related to that weather system. Like if it's really damp, for instance, to ground this a little bit, and it's really hot, there are going to be people that tend to have heat and dampness in their system in potentially an mm. imbalanced way, who when it becomes hot and damp outside, are going to have certain kinds of challenges that someone who was cold and dry might actually do really well with the hot damp because it tends to be inherently harmonizing for the way that their system organizes itself, right? And so the, the medicine, right, which is one of these things that I think is getting talked about more these days um, in public conversation, it, it operates in different ways in different contexts. And it's not that there's a like uh, a neutral value for whatever that intervention is, right? It's inherently contextual. And it's really about context and about dosage, right? Something that is exactly. poisonous yeah. in one dose Pharmacon, is going yeah. to be exactly healing in another, right? Um, just like, you know, Murarescu talks a lot about those yeah. wines that were so potent that they'd kill you. Oh, I you know, loved, I of, loved all of that information. That was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> great, great, great yarn. The yeah. mortality key. Um, so in any case, this, if I can make this make any sense, right? This, this dynamic you're talking about, a bit, about looking to healing as relational and as related to the environment, right? This is a, a huge part of, what we look at in a classical Chinese medical framework, right? Is how are we situated within the environment, within culture, within, you know, the intricacies of my internal milieu, both on a psycho-spiritual level and also kind of on the level we were speaking to a little while ago about, you know, all of the beings that are creating me in my, my physiology and in my physical structure. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I always think it's kind of shocking when people think that a Eurocentric perspective on material reductionist medicine and science and academics is somehow the worldview, when it's actually a very tiny slice of knowledge that hasn't been around for that long. And that the Mm -hmm. predominant themes that have been around for thousands of years have been, yeah, right relationship with land, healing the land, being realizing that all of these rituals of understanding how you're related to the kin around you are probably the most important things you can do. Um, and then we're like, no, it's actually this one little sterile cup <laughs> of yeah, information. Right. Um, right. Not that there aren't some really good gems in there, but they just also need to be balanced out with different types of knowledge for different people with different constitutions. It's funny yeah. you bring it up. My friend is a da- is in the Taoist lineage of stone healing um, and just did, uh, she's working through a um, holographic home experience where she goes into people's homes and for people sometimes with health issues mm. um, and helps them work through the guas, I think they are, um, of your home. Mm-hmm. And, but in relationship with your health in general. And um, so that was my first introduction to that. But it was a really interesting thing to start thinking about. Yeah, my health extends past my body. You know, my consciousness extends past my body. You know, more and more science is showing that the way we think and exist is not necessarily a silhouette. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so health itself would necessarily flow past what we think of as being our boundaries. Mm-hmm. Sure, because you know, on some level, right? It whatever we would think of as health or illness is really just kind of like it's the expression of how all of these different um, dynamics within this networked and nested set of systems are expressing in this moment. And yeah. in some respects, right? While certainly, you know, both Lucas and I, people come to us because generally something is wrong, right? Mostly people show up in my office because there's a problem that they haven't been able to address at the same time, right? There's a, there's a genius to the way that whatever that thing is, even if it is at that moment generating suffering, often substantial suffering, the there's a genius to the way that their system is expressing and working through all of these different, um, messages and questions and challenges right and most of the people that show up like drove themselves and can speak right and walk in and of itself like that's an incredible accomplishment in terms of that navigation right Mm -hmm. there's there's Mm -hmm. some way that the the genius of the organism is even with all of those challenges still expressing in such a way that like people are able to go about right their life now there are plenty of people that are working with a subset of the population that are much more ill than what I'm speaking to. Right. And I'm, you know, but the reason I bring this up is that it's, it's really easy when we're having an, a challenging time, especially an extremely challenging time um, to feel like somehow some part of us is failing some other part of us. Yeah. Right. Mm. And it can be a really radical reorientation to, to see the wisdom of the system in what it's doing, right? That it is both um, solving a, a certain problem set and also offering, uh, at least potentially, a road towards 
a different kind of question and answer relationship that can express as something that we would be more familiar with as health. Yeah. Right. And I had a friend once say to me, and it was so helpful, which is she said people who experience the illness immediately and, and who go and seek out healing are better than the people who don't hear it for many, many years. And that to have a really good alarm system is a sign of health, actually. It says, mm-hmm. okay, here's, what, here's what's going on. Here's how I need to change. And that the real danger is in not hearing those alarm bells for a long, mm-hmm. long time um, and not realizing that you're being asked to do something. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, I think right now a lot of people are ill in a lot of very mysterious, weird ways. And I think, yeah, there's so many things going on, environmental toxins, you know, generational trauma, our food isn't nutritious anymore. I mean, who knows? Um, but I do think that I have run up to in my, in my own personal life, a lot of people who are saying, all right, this is asking me to do a radical change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is asking me to have some kind of a transformation experience, but it's hard to know where, you know, who's going to pull you through the call (laughs) who's 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 on the other side saying i know how this happens i think that's the hard thing right now is we it feels like we are the first generation you know it's whatever generation is experiencing trauma always feels like the first generation but it does definitely feel like there's not a team on the other side saying this is how you do this and i think the hard part is initiation in other cultures often comes with a set of rules Mm-hmm. And of things that you can expect and you can move through people who've done it before you. And whatever is happening now does not have that flavor. It does not mm-hmm. feel like it comes with a rule book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally hear that. You know, it, it, it reminds me of two things. One is um, Daniel Pinchbeck likes to talk a lot about how his perspective on the kind of meta crisis is that it is a planetary level initiatory event yeah um which i think is a really interesting metaphor to hold yeah um i don't you know it's like i don't necessarily agree or disagree but i think it's definitely an interesting story to to sit with um and when i think about that if so as you were saying in many cultures there's like there is some set of protocols or rules or lore and there are elders and ancestors that are like going to catch you on the other side of the initiation, even if it doesn't feel like that to the person being initiated. Yeah. But what happens when, you know, where are those beings um, when it's planetary wide, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. on some level that makes me wonder like, okay, so those beings have to almost all be within the realm of the spiritual right? Rather than having anybody that can like literally catch you so that there still may be plenty of support, but it's operating, you know, at a level of the unconscious for most of us that maybe doesn't really feel particularly accessible. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, it's animals and plants and fungi and it's the landscape. And I think that I just, if I have anything to give to other people, it's just, all right, you feel alone, go outside, get to know a plant. Um, get, you know, marry yourself to a mountain, get to know another type of being. Um, and I think that personally, I, so I felt pretty adrift in terms of certain kinds of experiences I've had just because people around me aren't having them. And, um, 
the biggest help I've received have been from rivers, from woodchucks, from bald eagles, from from interactions I've had with non-human life and slow, weird, atypical, non-narrative interactions um, that have taught me in a way that is very hard to brand <laughs> and to explain. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's non-transmission. I can't, I can't transmit it. All I can transmit is that I do think the mentors and the healers are out there, but they're not always going to be um, a human paradigm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. I, I have a question. So how did you guys both individually get into medicine? Cause I always think it's such an interesting, um, choice to make and a a lot of times people are are pushed by their own health mine's story is not that exciting Mm -hmm. (laughs) or or, uh um it was um through martial arts basically interesting yeah so like um there's i don't know if you've ever dabbled in the martial arts that's it yeah oh okay well so that's a good one because um i think if you if you have a good teacher, <clears throat> eventually, you know it all sort of circles back around to actually like health and universal principles and like creating harmony. And so that's I was sort of on the cusp of that, and uh, it just so happened um, I at the point where that was becoming apparent, I didn't know that I could get into Chinese medicine. I didn't know it was a thing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I went off and I did whatever I thought was a, you know, my sick, my calling at the time. So I did like film and television. Yeah. And then luckily the recession happened and I went looking for other work and just happened to follow my, like this sort of beacon in my heart saying like, oh, you know, go back to whatever that was. And then, oh, acupuncture is a thing. Cool. Great. Let's go and check that out. And so I'm sort of come full circle, you know, 20 year you know, round Robin Hood's barn kind of adventure, but yeah. So nothing terribly exciting or profound, but (laughs) that's, that was my journey. What about you, Taryn? So let's see what the shortest path is. It's, it's it's more of a little bit longer and broader. Um, I grew up in a very loving, but very troubled family. Mm -hmm. Um, both of my parents were profoundly mentally ill, though super high functioning. Um, and from a pretty young age, I was like, okay, you know, like many of us, you assume that your family is the way the world is. Yeah. Right. Because you don't have anything else to know. But at, as, as far back as I can remember, I can remember thinking this might be the way the world is, but I don't think this is the way that the world should be. Yeah. Right. I've, I've got to find a different way. So I was from a very young age, um, sometimes with some amount of skill, but mostly in a pretty flaily, chaotic kind of way, looking for ways to um, open my experience up and perceive the world in different ways. So, you know, like studying a variety of different spiritual orientations and orientations to magic and working with psychedelics and like doing a lot of these things at an age where I was quite frankly too young to be exploring many of these areas of inquiry (laughs) in the ways that I was. Uh Um, And it was kind of just 
I didn't know what else to do except to just look at at what seemed to me to be non-ordinary ways of relating to experience yeah. and try to understand how I could get out of the the context I was in so that I could like potentially quite frankly not suffer as much as I was suffering. Yeah. Um so that you know took me into some pretty dark and not always so helpful territory but at the same time um was also super illuminative and I you know ended up getting involved in theater and dance and you know sort of like more uh directed explorations of consciousness which theater and dance for me were those things um and that led me to getting really curious about the physical body and then like studying body work um working as a body worker and then I kind of thought that that was going to be a career path but one of those explorations into kind of like other ways of knowing took me on a pretty long um exploration into ayahuasca traditions and that became the primary focus of my life for about 20 years wow um within a particular framework yeah. of uh uh the santo daimi which is a gnostic syncretic um brazilian tradition of that of working with ayahuasca um so in that that became my focus i ended up like kind of doing whatever i could professionally to generate enough revenue that i could spend time in brazil and you know work with my teachers and you know lead ceremonies and do all these things that were related to that exploration um but the result of that on a certain level was that i ended up having a career uh in the service industry and working as a caterer and it was really not a good fit for me on a lot of levels um and i kind of woke up one morning and realized right that i had been i i, I had become a person who in order to like follow this kind of spiritual um and healing path and this exploration of consciousness had a job that i hated and my job was what i did with most of my life yeah and and i was like fuck this yeah. is not okay this is like actually killing mm -hmm. me um and that was the moment that i decided i needed to take a different trajectory and get back into focusing on healing not only as kind of this umbrella for what i was exploring in my life but actually on a practical level like make it my vocation again and so then i went to graduate school to study chinese medicine with actually not a lot of experience in chinese medicine um but <clears throat> my teacher at the time was somebody who was an acupuncturist and was in the kind of like first wave of acupuncturists in the US and a long time ago I had asked him if he thought that that seemed like a reasonable career path to pursue and at the time his answer had been no I think you should just stick with this kind of like you know work you're doing with medicine the spiritual work you're doing with the mediumistic work you're doing like that's going to open up your capacity and and um ability to be of service to people as a someone who's like a facilitator of healing like just go with that so i just went with it because at that time like you know our relationship was such that if i asked him a question like that and he gave me such a direct answer i would kind of just like roll with it without a lot of questioning um <clears throat> for better and for worse when i asked him again many years later he was like that's the best idea i've ever heard you should totally yeah. do that 
so I went to grad school um, yeah. and it turned out to be absolutely the best decision that I could have possibly made because it really um, took me on a different road that allowed all of that work that I had been doing that in many respects was still in a state of pretty robust imbalance and disharmony in me, even though it had been very productive on a lot of levels. And it began to create this kind of space where I could really um, engage in a different kind of inquiry with both my own internal process and transpersonal processes and also how to begin to work with people in a way that was more effective and more nourishing for both myself and for them. Mm. Um, and so graduate school, you know, as often is the case, was just enough of a beginning that I could get a license and really start to study. Um, and so basically since then, I've just been trying to deepen my understanding of this medicine, primarily in clinical practice. Like I'm in the world of Chinese medicine, I don't even rank when it comes to like scholar, you know, like student. Um, and I'm, I study quite a bit, but like the people that are robust are like, it, it's kind of incomprehensible to me how dedicated they are to the scholastic end of things. And I'm definitely more in the like clinical, you know, like hands on uh, end of that spectrum. Um, but still you can't, you can't practice this medicine and not really be engaged with a sort of uh, iterative cultivation of capacity and understanding because otherwise you can't actually help people, right? There's always going to be something that's beyond your understanding, right? And it's generally going to come into your office at some point <laughs> yeah. and express. Right. And, like, and then, you know, if you haven't, I mean, no, nobody can know how to handle all the things. So part of what we're, I think, focused on really learning into is like how do you practically deal with mystery and indeterminacy in a way that might actually um, give you enough skill in navigating those spaces that more often than not you can be of benefit to someone who comes in seeking support and assistance um, so it's a it's a pretty cool project um, yeah um, I've seen Chinese medicine deeply, deeply help people in my life. So um, it's interesting to hear a practitioner's perspective and to hear how you guys both arrived into that. Um, I, yeah, I think if there's anything that we can do for each other, it's to midwife uncertainty, to be uncertainty doulas. Um, because I think that this is not a moment for answers. And an answer for one moment is not an answer for the next moment. And, and, and that is seeming to be more and more true. Um, can we live the question? Yeah. Yep. So, but I would think that as someone who is very practically helping people with their health, that that's fraught and intense and a lot, but perhaps also exciting. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's definitely all those things. I mean, mostly it's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's definitely waves and cycles where the fraught like you know often what will happen for people uh, at least the people that i've listened to and spoken to about this that practice medicine is like you'll cruise and like 
you'll be pretty effective for a while and like yeah. people will be feeling better mm -hmm. and then like something will happen and a whole new wave will move yeah. in you know and like and then you have to sort of reconfigure and decohere and recohere and mm -hmm. um at the same time like I'm always somewhat reticent to say this in the most public of spheres, mm -hmm. but the reality is that when it comes to clinical practice, I never have any idea what I'm doing. Now, I don't mean I that that's like the most hardening thing I've ever heard. Like, I feel like if every practitioner just put that, like in any healing modality, put that on their, yeah. like their calling card, I would say, I'll go to you. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I yeah. do tell people all the time that like, you know, I'm like, look, you are coming to me not everybody comes to me this way but like many people come looking for answers and i'm like i do not have answers mm -hmm. right i have open questions i have mm -hmm. ways we can explore things and mm -hmm. you know i'm i will be as honest with you as i can be but if what you want is uh it's this and it's that and right. here's the causal you know chain i was like mm -hmm. i'm not going to be able to provide those things for you generally speaking most of the time, people that come in with issues do feel better, right? But, you know, I can't promise that that's going to happen. And I definitely can't tell you why, right? Like why you are having the experience you're having. I can talk about probabilities. I can talk about understandings. I can talk about connections that I have witnessed and I am witnessing and how they co-arise. But I cannot tell you because almost everybody that's in pain wants to know Tell me what it's what? called. Tell what me happened? why it's happening and tell me the yeah. thing I can, I can do. do. Yeah. Right. And I'm mm -hmm. like, well, it, it's a process. It's not a thing. So that's the first thing we're going to have to shift is that anytime we, we thingify, we objectify any phenomenal arising, we're no longer, from my point of view, within the mind of Chinese medicine. Because in Taoism, everything, there, there is nothing that is fixed. Everything yeah. is constantly changing, right? Yeah. Um, and so if we're like, oh, it's got to be this, right? I'm like, well, I mean, cool. There are people that will tell you that. And mm -hmm. they're probably certain that they're right. I am not, that's not what's going to happen here. I can't do that. Um, yeah, I find that the people who are willing to say that or to give those explanations are just sort of oftentimes either they're just, they just want to make some, uh, communicate simply to their patient base or they they understand the multitude of everything and the interconnectedness of everything and they're just like uh <laughs> this is the base this is like what i can provide and that's it do you know what i mean and i think that your perspective Taryn, comes from uh you know a healthy respect for the complexity of the or of the organism and the environment and their interplay and like I think the more we educate the public about that, the better, because, you know, the reality is, and I, I, I talk about this all the time because it's, everybody always thinks like, well, I've been doing this. I've been like, you know, eating cheesecake and drinking coffee for 20 years, never bothered me. Like, like, yeah, but that's also why we're here. Do you know what I mean? It's not that um, it's like, you know, snow falling on uh, a tree branch and then eventually it breaks after an ice storm it's like you know year after year that thing's growing nothing happens sure and but the one year that there's snow and ice and snow and ice and snow and ice then eventually the tree branch breaks it's not that there's something within that 
one snowstorm specifically it's like no it's a culmination of things you know there's a tipping point where something actually reacts so yeah and i was just like, yeah i was reading that we're also like pin cushions of causality like one event is like so many different like pins of of things that are causing it mm. um and i loved that description which is also like yeah it's like okay yeah, this happened and you do need to change your behavior, but it was also the culmination of all of these different events. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah. yeah, I know as someone who's been to healing practitioners of ev- pretty much every single variety, um, the ones that I always feel safest with are the ones who hold that uncertainty open of being like, this is collaborative. We are trying to move energy. We're trying to make you feel better we're not going to have any story about what's supposed to work. We're going to pay attention to what actually works. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so what do you make of um, this push for things to, you know, we're, we're recognizing the Mycelium network and how amazing it is and yeah. how interesting it is. And it seems like that's become the new it thing. Like maybe the all the answers are in that, you know, maybe there's like, we can use mushrooms in our coffee now. Well, that's yeah. Like, the the thing that I, sleep I and, hate you know. is when people are like, they thingify, you know, mm-hmm. let, this is the mushroom. We're going to plug it into every one of our problems rather than saying, this is an entity that is complex that predates plants that taught plants how to root into soil. It probably is working on a much longer it has it's at a much higher pay, pay scale than we are, you know, in terms of what's going on on like long, long-term narratives, non-human narratives, fungi mm. are, are big players much more so than we are, but that doesn't mean we can thingify it, that we can plug it into all of our problems. And something I'm very worried about is the new Silicon Valley take on psychedelics and on taking mushrooms and putting them in pill form and acting like you can have a mm-hmm. heroic dose or you can take a regimen and it works. Mm-hmm. And when my experience has always been that you have to ask every being you're in relationship with for permission and you have to know mm-hmm. where it was grown and you have to smell it and you have to ask it differently every day. You know, I microdose with mushrooms, but they are real mushrooms grown locally that I ask when I microdose, how much of you am I supposed to eat? Am I allowed to do this today? What what is what's going on? And I think that we try and simplify the directionality of these relationships with subject object. And I so I see a lot of subject ob- object um, jargon about mycelium and about mushrooms and about psychedelics that I don't love. Um, I think fungi as their own kingdom as being differentiated from flora and fauna as being something that's actually closer to us than, than um, plants um, closer to animals than plants is I think that's a revelation and there's a certain kind of mysticism in there for me they show me that mysticism does not have to be disembodied it can be ecological and I think that that is their real potency for me is they show me that I can be spiritual in a way that has roots that is about practical scientific knowledge that actually opens me up to a kind of almost Gnostic marvel to go back to gospel of Thomas that other par- other spiritual paradigms don't necessarily deliver me to. Mm. Yeah. I totally love that. The things that I, I'm like really feeling uh, a resonant 
vibration through 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 myself in as you talk about it it's definitely the this like relational communicative piece right yeah. where it's like there is you know even from sort of a whiteheadian point of view yeah. right there's like you know the most shamanic of the like the white man philosophers from my point of view oh, I, I just was that, really like, reading process and philosophy yeah. Uh, yeah amazing right amazing so like you know this the prehension all the way down the felt sense all the way down right the way that there is this kind of like as you say in one of your essays the animate everything right yeah. where there's it's there's an aliveness it doesn't mean that that aliveness is the same no or one right but it is still alive and that if it's alive then there is relationship and if we don't acknowledge that and don't lean into that i mean what happens to relationships that aren't tended they don't usually go so well for any of the parties involved or they don't deliver the prescribed effects <laughs> they don't there's, they there's have, that too they have their own personalities and i always think about that with with food and with medicines is you know where was it grown what does it want to do with you what you know <laughs> these mm-hmm. things matter um, you know, a, a dandelion that one of my herbal teachers was like, you know, if you're really sick, maybe you actually do want to use the dandelion that grew between the concrete. Maybe that mm-hmm. is the hardy dandelion. Maybe that's the oh, one okay. that you need in your body. But maybe if right. you're actually feeling pretty good, you want the softer dandelions. And I, th- I think oh, it's important to think about medicine in this more complex narrative way. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I'm a storyteller. I'm I really, I'm a fiction writer who like got speaking. Taryn of like weird left-handed like <laughs> reread. Yeah. I'm a fiction writer. I, I love historical <laughs> fiction, um, and I have been kind of by a series of very strange parts of uh, somersaults in my life, been directed to writing a lot of nonfiction about history and ecology and spirituality and science, but the thing that I care about is storytelling and, and asking for stories from more than human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, and I, I mean, I, your work is super amazing in case there are folks that are listening to this conversation that have not had the opportunity to read or listen to other conversations with Sophie. I want to really encourage you um, to take the time. It's her. <laughs> I, I don't know that I've ever said this before, but Sophie's work is brilliant and beautiful enough that even if you are not on Facebook, you might want to consider <laughs> joining Facebook just oh, for the purpose oh, of oh, reading oh. what she oh has posted God. there because oh. it's really potent. <laughs> and the really lightning relevant. strike comes down and obliterates us all. Yeah, um, I'll take a lightning strike on that one. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole um, side note, which is like, I hate social media and it actually has like, gotten me publishing deals. And I'm like, oh, how do I deal with this? <laughs> wow. Well, my yeah. buddy Mushtaq likes to say that no, Facebook literally is the devil. And he's like, and you got to use the devil to do God's work. <laughs> yeah. um, he's, he's a Sufi. So, huh. you know, context yeah. for both devil and God and that and like a you know mm-hmm. big fourth way guy. But I mean, it it has a place still, even if I totally agree with Jared Lanier that it's like it's about as problematic as something can be. It's also, you know, there's a lot of benefit that I think can come from that. Um, So, yeah, I'll say it again, like 
as as soon as you can go check out her work because it's it's really really beautiful and potent well thank you they're gonna um, be actual they're gonna be more than one book available soon so thank hopefully i'll be able to actually just give people books um that'll be great i'm looking yeah. forward to it yeah i wanted to also um you know continue to talk about these interesting connections between Taoism and the mycelial yeah. network and um, embodied spiritual practice. Yeah. Right? So one of the things that, and you know, there's a fair amount of debate, which we have avoided on in many conversations. And I'll also sidestep this time about <laughs> Taoism and proto Taoism and Taoism as a religion and as a philosophical system and uh, yeah, I'm not equipped to alchemy. have those conversations. There, mostly, I bring I them up because I'm like, there are people who want to have those conversations, and I'm always like, they're awesome and valid. It's not our jam here so much, um, mm-hmm. but the the work that comes out of the internal martial arts traditions that are very rooted in a practical relationship to Taoist philosophy and sort of an embodied relationship to Taoist philosophy is is super powerful and one of the the most fundamental practices within that broad canon right is just sitting or standing and breathing into your dantian into your root right so like Mm -hmm. the practice of being rooted rooting and experiencing the root and the experiencing the the human organism as the space where the energy of the heavens and the energy of the earth are actually in this kind of dynamic interplay and transformation like that's sort of the main inquiry right um it can get expressed in a lot of different ways and there's a lot of different opportunities to like hold that inquiry but in the broadest sense like that's kind of the entry point to that practice um and so it's you know, one of my experiences in exploring those kinds of practices is that the capacity for um, in an embodied or a bodyful, as Bonnie Roy would say, way, feeling into how networked everything is, it's, it's really a, an awesome opportunity to increase that capacity in myself and certainly seems to be in folks that I have talked to um, a powerful way to do that in them as well. So, you know, it's uh, it just continues to be interesting to see how, like, the mycelial on a kingdom level, the sort of, like, the psychedelic as one of the expressions of that yeah. kingdom, um, this kind of embodied, bodyful spiritual inquiry, you know, or maybe spiritual is not even exactly the right word because of the way that it's been kind of rarefied and there's something that's a lot more um, eminent in the kind of spiritual exploration that we're talking about at the moment. But um, there's just this really beautiful intersectionality and interbeing to all of this that it's like every time I experience a new level of deepening in it, it like echoes back and echoes forward and orthogonally into all of these different ways of experiencing um, self and other and world that like continues to just blow my mind. Me too. And I mean, I think the, the thread of it that I'm personally really interested in is in fermentation and is in yeasts and this idea, 
I mean, I've long thought, this is my personal like little narrative storytelling thing, which is I think that we were domesticated by grasses, wild grasses around 10,000 years ago. That's my feeling. Mm. <laughs> no basis. <laughs> um, but as a fiction writer, as someone who spent a lot of time with archaeological data and done a lot of research and reading, and um, that's my feeling, is that we start to make beer and we start to make, you know, I mean, it's our immortality key kind of walks through this. We start to brew mm-hmm. graveyard beers and bake bread, which came first. Yep. We're not totally sure. I think the beer probably. Um, and we start experiencing this kind of fungal intoxication and we build civilizations, you know, mm-hmm. Gobekli Tepe, you know, and yep. 9,000 years ago, we, we start, we, which is um, a huge base for these giant basins of beer brewing vats and um, mm-hmm. uh, bakeries. <laughs> so basically civilization is like, let's make some beer and some bread. Um, and so for me, another interesting comp, Complicated aspect of, of this fungal element is what is it? What story is it telling through us? There's the psychedelic one where it seems to be facilitating a kind of ecodelia, a kind of eco awakening, where mm-hmm. you know we've been sensory gated by our culture. We're getting a lot of sensory stimulus that we necessarily gate out, but that would actually make everyday life pretty psychedelic. You know, indigenous people are able to read the wind, able to predict weather patterns and have a much more complex, intelligent relationship with their environment, which is available to us. So psychedelics feel like an opening to that. But what has fermentation done to us? That's another fungal story. So I'm not saying there's one fungal story. There are a lot of them. And there's one fungal story that has really moved through us as a civilization in an interesting way. And we look at these fermentation gods that are fungal gods like Jesus and Dionysus and Osiris. Um, and we have to think, what are they doing? Who, who are they in service for? Um, yeah. So that's something I've been really playing with. And that is a, a through line in the book that is coming out in spring 2022. Yeah. That's the essay okay. book or that's the historical um, fiction? The historical fiction actually has a home, looks like. Um, we'll be out soon, hopefully. That's okay. like oh. new. So not officially saying that, but kind of saying that. Um, okay. <laughs> no details, but thank you. Um, but yeah, that's the amazing. book of essays, which is about using ecology mycelium to reweld myths of the masculine, is out spring 2022 with Inner Traditions. Yeah. Awesome. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, um, I totally, I totally love what you're saying. And I want to open up the, at least when I use the word psychedelic, I am not only referring to what people traditionally think of as psychedelic substances, but definitely more leaning into this, like, you know, what, I mean, everything we do on some level is going to change the experience of consciousness yeah because conscious is like a flower of all of these other things right so whether i'm eating bread or drinking beer graveyard or otherwise or (laughs) you know breathing or you know like trying to understand how to read the wind because i don't have the same skill that you know our forebears had i think all of these things in some way also are very much psychedelic experiences right um you know there's this way where when we begin to uh or continue in the process of 
creating a greater level of permeability between the perceived boundary of self, other, and world. That for me is really kind of what I think of as the psychedelic experience, mitigated yeah. and mediated in a lot of different ways, but you know, pretty broad. Um, well, we're on the same page with that. Thank you for articulating that so succinctly and elegantly. Um, it, it's hard. I mean, I think just because there's such a move to um, to capitalize on the uh, the actual chemicals and biological components that seem to induce these experiences mm-hmm. um, right now, um, in a way that both is good and bad. Like I, I am, I'm agnostic. It's complicated. Um, yeah. But yeah. Definitely always want to offer to people that everyday life can be. I mean, I think people, one thing that I always offer is people who've experienced trauma have the negative side of that, which is their sensory gating is mm. open all the time. But that can also be a kind of superpower and show you something you can give to other people, which is, okay, what does it mean to be open to so much stimulus? <laughs> mm-hmm. How can that actually enhance pleasure and enhance relation, relational intimacy? Um, I mean, mirror neuroning. People just like coming into synchrony, walking with each other, you know, beginning to think like each other. That's pretty psychedelic, too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see a lot of that in movement practice, too, yeah, right? especially martial training when it's done at a pretty sophisticated level is, you know, that's actually a capacity that is intentionally being cultivated, right? So that you can uh, make use of that in terms of being able to kind of like, you know, in a combative situation, short circuit some of the dynamics that are going on and either de-escalate or move into spaces that become blind spots for someone who might seek to behave in a violent and aggressive way, you know, but there are ways in which you can kind of manipulate that mirror neuron capacity, you know, for good in this case, so that you don't end up um, upregulating the aggressive dynamics in the situation and ending up with people being, you know, more damaged than they might otherwise need to be. Um, yeah, sidebar. No, and um, I think I actually think that's a kind of I I have a very limited understanding of aikido and martial martial arts, but that is a a um you know my basic elementary understanding is like yeah how can I use the energy here to create more balance rather than mm-hmm, yeah than mm-hmm, then tipping mm-hmm. it out of balance. Um, yeah, yeah, to aikido move. I think about that a lot. Um, because we're always having conversations with people who are a little out of sync with us. So how do we kind of come back into an understanding? Yeah. I always find it interesting to see what people's, if people have any martial experience, like what they gravitated towards yeah. and what that sort of expresses about the, that person. That's interesting. Also, you know, because, I guess that's what I gravitated towards. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there's, there's more combative arts yeah. where it's, you literally meet force with force mm-hmm. uh, and sort of make that, create that disruption. The Newtonian martial arts, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Very linear, very yeah. straightforward. And then there's circular ones regardless uh, of like, you know, yeah. And so it, I find that like, like Taryn, I knew was an internal martial artist straight off the bat. Like he's definitely not a combative person. He's not like a karate taekwondo kind of dude jeet kundo whatever you know and if you if i had to pick for you it would have definitely been something softer yeah so it's just fascinating yeah well it's actually i mean something that i do think is interesting is i i do think that my the circumstances the ecology the um 
cultural, personal incidents of my life seem to push me towards being combative and defensive. So I do think it's Mm. been a recorrection on my part, which is just saying, okay, that really doesn't work. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. that, that reactionary kind of forceful, just personally, just doesn't seem to communicate what I want to communicate. And I actually think this work I did with masculinity and with myths of the masculine was this kind of trying to be like, all right, so this is something that triggers you. So you need to work with it in a really soft, creative way. Um, Mm. Yeah. Say more about that. Oh, just, just realizing I had had these storytelling gatherings with women for a really, really long time and being like, okay, this feels like it's not moving energy. Um, and I want to bring men into this space. Um, but that also feels like intense. And so what, what is, what is masculine storytelling mean? And why, why do we have, why is there only one masculine story? Why has masculinity been conflated with patriarchy? Are there better stories? And then, I mean, I wanted to have this be of like, I initially, this wasn't going to be a book. It was going to be events. Um, you know, I, I, I write about mythology and read a lot about it, but mostly that goes into my historical fiction, but I wanted this to be participatory, but over quarantine necessarily, it became conversations with other people, really deep research. And then it became essays. Yeah. So, but it was like, it was me forcing myself to do something in a different way than I would have Mm. probably done it, which is being like, why? (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that I am curious to hear some thoughts on, if you have them, um, is the transition from orality Mm. to literality. And um, I mean, certainly historical perspective, but more actually, I think I'm interested in if you have thoughts on like that liminal space and how... um, you know, in a lot of your recent essays, you've been talking about what happens to the myths when they become yeah. written down and how that changes them into this kind of non-participatory uh, expression. And so, you know, what's interesting, right, is always to read about a dynamic like that. Yeah. Right? As you're pointing out, these were going to be events. They were going to be conversations. And then because of the pandemic, they have transformed into essays. And at the same time, right? Like, which I'm incredibly grateful for, because I probably wouldn't have ever known about them as events, right? So it's super nourishing. And there's this like, inherent, um, like, there's just this interesting thing where you're actually writing about the problematization of writing. Oh, yeah, within relationship to myth. And so I'm just wondering if you have, you know, thoughts, riffs on that, because it's a really interesting and, and like rich place of friction, it seems to me. Well, this is some place where I kind of want to point to Amanda Palmer as being a really big inspiration to me, which is I think that there's a real um, uh, hubris to the to literary production and to this idea that you have to create in privacy or in small writing workshops with other writers and that you have to keep your work secret until it comes out. And mm. I actually think that I, weirdly enough, I've never had a more participatory ongoing generative experience of writing than I have. And I, you know, I shared when I first started writing these essays, I shared them online and had immediate feedback of people being like, this works, this doesn't work. This is wrong. 
this is what you should listen to. This is what you should read. Hmm. And that as I was writing these essays, they were changing and being revised and they were, they were moving with the project and with other people and people were coming. I mean, it was a really kind of wild experience was it was like a party, you know, and I had invoked Dionysus and Dionysus was my like inspiring theme. And so it really felt like it was this weird, like that social media as being something I've been very averse to for a long time suddenly was showing me that, yeah, the written word can be very calcified, but this community can help your work become agile and become a, a polyphony of voices, diverse, sometimes contrapuntal, sometimes coinciding, uh, diverging, that it, it created much more flexible thinking for me. Um, mm. And I actually have been thinking going forward that, and Amanda Palmer really, um, as a writer and as an artist, really has for a long time demonstrated what is it like to think with community to mm -hmm. share to be okay i'm in process but this process should probably take into consideration my readers and um so so side note so these projects that i've been doing for the past couple of months have been very interactive and in a mm -hmm. in a generative way um right. and that I do not think I would have arrived at certain types of thinking had I not just put myself out there and been corrected and been shown how to think in more lively ways. Um, but to go back to a more simplistic personal understanding of orality and text, you know, for it's only very recent that we have texts that are written down that don't change, that get reproduced at the, in the same way again and again and again art in the age of mechanical reproduction, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, Karen Armstrong writes about this. Leonard Schlein writes about it. There's so many books. David Abrams write about the transition between, you know, orality to ideograms and that, um, to pictograms to ideograms. Um, and so moving from spoken collaborative scripture that's always adapting and changing to suit different ecosystems, different social disruptions. Um, you know, it, the thing that people don't understand is that the Judaism we understand as Judaism is post uh, post the fall of the second temple period. And it's almost a reaction formation to a lot of trauma and to genocide. Um, and that it's an attempt to rewrite old temple rules that had never really been written down. And that prior to Jesus and in Jesus's time, the written word was actually seen as being pretty unreliable and that exegesis and being able to memorize these texts, to change them, to retell them and adapt them, targums, mishnas, that was where the real thinking happened was in um, the ability to interpret, to change and to retell. And that's true across cultures. Scripture, storytelling is collaborative. It's communal. Um, Homer was, you know, probably a bunch of different people changing the story to adapt to different cities and places. Um, and so I think that the, as someone who loves writing and, and who's been trained in it and feels like that's probably the best way to do certain things, I don't want to totally demonize it, but I think it does, it, it does always run the risk of saying a story can only be told one way. And it does run the risk of saying this story will be applicable a year later. And I think it's really important to say like, no, this story will probably be viable for a very short period of time. And someone else should probably come in and retell it. Mm. Mm. 
I I'm minded of a that Marshall McLuhan riff about how like new technological expressions will sometimes recall older modes. Yeah. Right. And he had this idea that the electronic, the digital specifically, would would somehow be re evoking orality. And yeah. so as you were talking about your experience of you know, putting this work out there and then all of a sudden having like all of this different participatory input was really, you know, I was just minded of that pretty strongly. No, it's, I, it's something I want to write about someday. I don't feel like it's done yet, but it's been mm. so it was, it was an interesting, so I've written a lot of books. I've ghostwritten for a long time, um, published a lot under, under other people's names. I've written my own book that was 900 pages, very researched, you know, a very literary, very secretive. And, you know, no one else except like other writers and my agent read it. And then to write this, which was so messy and so public and so effective so far at putting me into really generative relationship with people and changing the way I think. Yeah. So that's been a real reframe for me personally. Yeah. Like, okay, so I demonize social media, but it's helping me think better. Maybe. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Yeah, Well, see, you're... I was going to say, to your point, Taryn, like this podcast, mm-hmm. right? The technology yeah. coming around to you know bring back to because everybody and their mother has a podcast now, and it's I mean you know there's certain there's a, an array of different production value and different techniques of doing it, um, but everybody wants to talk to people and express things in a different way. Like I don't think you know every. Um, you know, I think there's like seven degrees of separation to one podcast, you know, so I don't think your cousin who has a podcast about his, you know, his hobbies um, is scripting it. So he's, you know, engaging with his buddies or, you know, friends or something. And um, it's an, it's an alive evolving conversation may not be very interesting, but (laughs) you know, it's at least alive. I've been thinking a lot about podcasting because I think I learn best orally personally. I read like an insane amount and I love reading, but I think I learn best when I listen to things. And there was such an aha moment. I had been so colonized by an incredibly intense academic experience where I really thought there were only certain people in certain modes of, 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 of receiving knowledge. And when I graduated and kind of took a breath, I was like, no podcasts are a really great way of like reaching different types of thinkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, I can't remember if we've talked much about Tyson Yunkaporta's work or if you're very familiar with him. (laughs) I love his work so much. I actually just re-listened to his podcast with you this morning. Oh, cool. Amazing. There's certain portions of it where I'm just like, he's a stand-up comedian, you know? Totally. He he and Michael Garfield have a new conversation that they just had on the 15th that just oh and i'm talking to michael Garfield coming up so that's a nice little yeah (laughs) we we love michael and tyson we're Mm -hmm. uh we've had to reschedule a conversation with michael but we're hopefully going to be talking at the beginning of september great Um, well i really look forward to listening to that um yeah i'm super stoked he's both of those guys are just we love them and mm-hmm. i'm think i'm just thinking about the notion of the yarn right yeah. as this kind mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. you know multi dimensional participatory um you know space of discovery and exchange and you know on one of tyson's got a podcast called the other others i don't know i if just you... found it actually i, I didn't yeah. know it existed and i was like what <laughs> it's yeah. it's yeah. super interesting um and at one point 
I think it's when he's talking to my buddy Glenn Murphy, who's a um, martial arts and science martial arts teacher and practitioner and science guy. And uh, Tyson's basically like, I just I'm not reading right now. Like if somebody sends me an idea that's interesting, I reach out to the person whose idea it is and I ask them if they will talk to me about it. Yeah. No, I, Which I, I totally I mean, respect that. I'm not either oaring, yeah. right? But I love it because I'm just like, yeah, dude, like this is mm-hmm. a moment where the opportunity, um, I mean, even for folks like me and Lucas that don't have the kind of like reach that somebody like Tyson or Michael or yourself does, the opportunity to connect with people who 10 years ago would have seemed like they were living in some other universe, but potentially connect with them and have an actual conversation about whatever it is. Like it's, you know, I think it's maybe less even than the seven degrees of separation of the podcast, right? It's like for so many people, you know, somebody who knows somebody who knows them and like people seem to, maybe this is pandemic related, maybe not be mostly pretty amenable to having a conversation. Well, Um, here's my big thing that I've learned. I think best with other people. I just mm-hmm. do. Um, I think mm-hmm. best in conversations like this. Thank you. Um, I, I do. And I think thank one you. of the problems of, of the pandemic initially was I thought, okay, how am I going to keep thinking? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah, yeah, I mean, and I've always been stunned by how gracious my favorite writers and thinkers have been when I have bugged them. <laughs> so I, I can only think that they want it too. They want to be bugged mm. um mm-hmm. yeah so yeah tyson yeah, is amazing I feel like, what, what were you gonna say oh i was just gonna say um in some ways i i kind of hope that this is our podcast can be like an example for what people can just do or a revitalization of like the old way we used to communicate yeah <laughs> which is like you know when i was growing up that's what we used to do we would just sit around get into a little bit of mischief <laughs> And like, and just chat, you know, uh, I mean, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, so like there wasn't much to do otherwise, but, um, we would have extensive long debates with a small group of friends. And that was fundamental to my development. Me too. Yeah. And I mean, the, the one element that is hard is I do, I love hosting. And I love making food and I love the whole hoopla of that. And I do think that there is a certain element that's hard to recreate with podcasting or these Skype and Zoom events where you can get people to admit things and and talk about things they don't necessarily talk about in podcasts when you create real intimacy in that like primal hut Mm. like together. Um, And I do miss that. I do miss that, you know, Mm. I love talking about magic and ghost stories and weird stuff. And so that's a little harder to get people to talk about Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's this concept in chinese medicine where you know there's on a certain level you need to have a reserve you need to have something that's kept hidden and secret and and that's fine you know because we don't need to be all out there are all parts of our being and this is partially what like our teacher ed talks about is potentially uh, problematic in the social media age because everybody wants to share every moment of their life and like intimate or otherwise, or maybe everything's just service level and there's nothing that's interesting and intimate anymore in their lives because they don't hold anything in and everything just sort of stays in the superficial level. Um, So I, I mean, for us, I think it's therapeutic (laughs) 
in some ways to be open and and uh, and and getting that honesty out of other people as well. But you know, I I I appreciate a certain level of intimacy on these spaces, and then I reserve yeah. even more intimate conversations for like the like you said the yeah. sort of hut. When you really are neuroning, when you really are together and you're Mm. breathing the same air and you're like part of the same fungal existence. Yeah. 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 You can't. Yeah. Yeah. And so I do, I do miss those, but I have, I mean, the, the amount to which I have learned from podcasts is really stunning. I can't. Yeah. And, and podcasts like this, where you guys just really get some of my favorite thinkers to open up and talk in a way that isn't scripted. Like this, the scripted conversations are are boring because like, here's the thing. Someone has a book coming out. They know their shtick. They do 10 podcasts. You listen to one of them. You don't need to listen to any of the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that has merit for sure, but it's definitely not. I mean, it's a little bit like listening to an audiobook. Like exactly. I love listening to an audiobook. It's super helpful. It's definitely not the same thing as the kind of like, you know, interaction where you end up going somewhere that nobody could have expected and you couldn't have gone yeah. there except in that moment with those folks having that conversation, Yeah, which is, you know, definitely what has proven to be the most um, sort of invigorating and nourishing aspect of this project is like all the things we that we have learned and are learning or discovering that we never could have known otherwise, you know, because we have had the opportunity to have all of these really beautiful experiences with folks that we never talked to before you know so mm-hmm. it's pretty awesome wow. yeah it it makes me sort of think of tyson and how I, I feel a little sad for him because i know that he feels that his book it in some ways is like almost the wrong intent the wrong um iteration of these ideas it's like i know i've heard cementing them so on paper things about right it, yeah. he's like he's conflicted about it and then he's had all these amazing conversations because of the book and he's and he, you know everybody wants to talk about the book and i think eventually he just kind of gets like okay yeah the book's cool i appreciate it but it's it's dead well that and that's was. kind of how i so i'm the, ch- the child of writers so i've really seen that like the production is so long like they've finished the book for so long before it comes out that then talking about it, uh, uh, it's just like, it's like, yeah, it's like digging up a dead body. You're like, oh, this thinking is so old at this point. And I'm having this experience right now selling a book that I finished two years ago. And then like, it's going to be two years for it to come out. And <laughs> I'm going to be talking about it. And I'm going to be like, wow, I wrote that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it's, it's complicated. Um but you also kind of have to honor your children. You're like, all right, that was the child I had. And it right. it is represents a certain kind of parenting that I did. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah. It's interesting because in this conversation uh, between Tyson and Michael, and it turns out like Tyson unsurprisingly was a big fan of Michael's work. Yeah. Um, it's the first time in a while where I feel like I've heard a conversation with Tyson where I didn't feel that thing that you're pointing to, Lucas. There's like, they talk about Sam talk some, but like, it's just, uh, everything feels very immediate and vibrant. And Mm. he feels, he, 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 he doesn't, at least in my experience of the conversation, right. That feeling of like, 
here we go again. It's just not there in this conversation. There's like a well, different mm-hmm. turn, which is awesome. I felt that mm-hmm. in this conversation, I felt like he was really, really funny. And I really was like, oh, just go off. Like, just He's super oh, funny. Cool. cool. Yeah. Thank Good. you. He's super funny. We did have a blast with yeah. him. Too. And you provided it, it was, that I space. Think it was, yeah. It was hard for us to restrain <laughs> because I had made, and I, and I hadn't <laughs> done this yet. I had made so many notes and I had my little book next to me and I was like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. but it was just fun. And he's such a jovial dude that it was easy to just kind of riff. So yeah. appreciate that though. Well, hopefully so going Sophie, forward. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was just going to, no. He's going to land the plane. Yeah. I was going to ask you <laughs> if there's things that you want to touch on before we, we start coming in for a landing. Cause we're a little over 90 minutes and that's usually all we like to ask of people. Cause we know that folks have lives, full lives. Yeah. Um, and other podcasts to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, Go through the list. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I would, I would ask people to come and be in conversation with me and to come and noodle with me Um, that I'm a writer, but I'm also a conversationalist and a yarner. For me, I always think of Cat's Cradle. Donna Haraway writes about that and stay with the trouble, just like pass it Mm. back and forth, you know? So I'm thinking and I'm writing and I'm writing other books, but they're going to come into being by being in relationship with other people. So bring your stories. Mm. Yeah. Sympoesis. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Thank you guys. And always know that, you know, no matter what book comes out, you can always talk to us about whatever's on your mind at the present. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I will, I'm going to send you everything that comes out. I'll send it your way for Excellent. sure. Yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Well, Looking it's been to a total joy and a pleasure and an honor to have this opportunity to have this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, um, too. Thank you for your work. <laughs> yes. Well, thank likewise. You, yeah, I mean, your, your guys' podcast is like, is this, are we still podcasting? All right, I'll say it. Who cares? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we, we can stop. We'll stop with some Yeah. Your guys' podcast is kind of what I'm looking for, which is, yeah, it's just people really cool. thinking on their toes. And that's what I, that's mm. real magic is when people are not like telling, they're thinking. Mm. So, yeah. Love it. That is totally what Appreciate we're going it. for. So it's so awesome that that's mm-hmm. how it's landing with you. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, I'm here for whatever I can offer to you guys too. So, yeah. Awesome.